Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. I believe we're down to our last uh, two uh, or three messages there in 2 Peter. And since we were in 1 Peter before that, that will complete the set of 1 and 2 Peter, the writings of the wonderful Apostle Peter. So you're turning to 2 Peter 3. But uh, first let me tell you a little story. On May 15, 2006, David Sharp was on his descent down from the top of Mount Everest. So he's one of these guys that was trying to climb Mount Everest. He'd made it to the top. He was coming down. And he sought shelter under a rock in an area known as Green Boots Cave. Have you heard of Green Boots Cave before? Green Boots Cave. It's called that because it's the site where a guy wearing green boots had died in May 1996, about 10 years before David Sharp was making this descent. And the guy's body remains there on the mountain. Nobody's ever brought it down. It's just perpetually buried there in the icy conditions up there. So almost 10 years later to the day, David Sharp found himself exhausted and alone, just a few feet away from the body of the man known as Green Boots. And David Sharp was also dying and looked like he might die right there. At the same time, there was a group of 40 hikers making their own ascent of Mount Everest, hoping to themselves be able to say they climbed the world's tallest mountain. And so they were climbing up. And um, so Green Boots Cave is in a passage known as the Death Zone. That's kind of ominous, isn't it? Because the extreme cold there can cause frostbite to any exposed part of the body. Now, each of those hikers had paid $25,000 U.S. money in permits and guide fees for this daring experience. They were... They committed a lot of resources doing this. And quitting's not part of the vocabulary. I mean, you want to finish it and get it done. And they were very close to accomplishing their goal. But on May 15, 2006, topping the mountain and finishing their quest meant passing right by the legendary Green Boots Cave where David Sharp lay dying. And they became aware that he was in there. So what should they do? What would you do if stopping to help meant not achieving the goal you had set for that day? helping this man live instead of die. Well, you probably want to know what they did, don't you? I'll tell you at the end of the message. So we're continuing our message today in 2 Peter. And his last written words before he was killed for his faith by Emperor Nero, Paul and Peter both killed around the same time. Paul by beheading and Peter, we're told, was crucified on an upside down cross. He said, I'm not worthy to die the same way my Lord did. And uh, so they flipped it over and crucified him upside down. Uh, Back in chapter 1, we saw Peter had written about our sufficient Savior, our sufficient salvation, and the sufficient scriptures that help us keep growing and bearing fruit no matter what we're facing. And then in chapter 2, he gave very poignant uh, warnings about avoiding false teaching, being able to identify it, being able to stay away from it, and to encourage others uh, not to become apostates uh, going away from the faith, but instead to embrace the faith. Now we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Peter writes, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, 
that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the whole, by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's the title of this message, Not Wanting Any to Perish. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for 2 Peter chapter 3, this passage, where Peter, as he's speaking his very last words to us, God, uh, in this chapter, uh, speaks of, how, of the great heart of God. Lord, it just does our hearts good to read that our wonderful, loving God doesn't want any to perish. He, His holiness will not allow Him to uh, allow a perpetually defiant person to go on shaking their fist at heaven. And so there is no hope without repentance. But thank you that you're so merciful, you're so loving, that uh, the offer of acceptance goes out to the world if we would but repent. So instead of perishing, we will have everlasting life with you, God, a more focused life now that we can bring you glory in. And God, I pray that as we look at this passage, you'll bless us with it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, verses 1 and 2, Peter starts out by saying, Remember to rely on God's Word. So verse 1 is the verse that connects 2 Peter with 1 Peter. I love these little places like this for Bible students where he says, Hey, I'm writing to you this second epistle. Well, there you go, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, right? Verses like that kind of stick out to us and help us know. Uh, do you remember uh, Luke does that too, right? In Luke chapter 1, he talks about he's writing to Theophilus. The name means God lover. And in Acts chapter 1, he's writing to Theophilus again, God lover, you know. May have been one person, may have just been any God lover of any generation uh, that uh, wanted to uh, connect with God through the Word. So Peter, we learned in 1 Peter, was writing to refugee Christians living along the Black Sea. And they're having to reform into churches there, probably wouldn't be able to get back to Jerusalem anytime soon or wherever they had been, Rome and other parts where they'd experienced church together. And that can be a hard time, you know, when all of a sudden, we, we've seen it this past year, you know, uh, all of our churches are kind of reforming uh, on the other side of all this COVID stuff. And I haven't talked to a single pastor uh, that has more than two-thirds of his people back, you know. Um, and some aren't coming back and some have uh, reoriented to this place or that place. And it's just, it's just different. And I was challenged by a, a member recently, a good challenge, say, hey, what are our goals? You know, we talked about 2020. Well, that's past now. What is 2025 and 2030? And I said, the problem is right now it's so hard to set a baseline, you know, and know exactly where we're at. Because first you want to know where you're at. So then you can say, okay, if you're here and you want to get here, we are here, we're going here, and we can set steps and, along the way to see if try to achieve milestones and things like that. Just kind of organizational thinking. 
And uh, you, you don't even think like that when you're coming out of the kind of time we have. And certainly the Christians that Peter was writing to uh, were just trying to reform and get things going again where they were and remember the things Christ had taught them in the Great Commission and the apostles have taught them. So 1 Peter and 2 Peter are just great basic Christianity as they do that. We saw that with James too. So before 1 and 2 Peter we were in James and James was doing the same thing. They had been thrust out because of persecution away from Jerusalem and Pastor James writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. That was the Jewish background Christians, all the places they were. And he talks about basic Christianity. So James says things like, hey, if you got two people coming to church and one's rich and one's poor, you better not shun that poor person. You know, show them. Don't show favoritism towards somebody that can help you in earthly terms and the other guy can't, right? And Peter has done that uh, by saying, hey, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter 1, he said, add to your faith. And he went down the list of things like virtue. And he got to brotherly love and then, of course, agape love and all those th same things. So, they are his dear friends, the kind of fellowship the gospel created then and still creates now. And um, I, I love that little song. It's kind of hokey now, but friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. When you hear that Peter is, um, you know, when you later learn that he died shortly after this, uh, it really adds all the more poignancy to his words as he's concerned about them. Um, Christians never say goodbye for the last time. So Peter says, I write awakening your pure understanding with a reminder. So false teachers say, trust us about what is really true. True teachers say, you know that is not what the Bible teaches. Check it out. So Peter's always trying to say, I'm reminding you of things that the Lord taught us. We're passing them along to you. You can be like the Bereans from the book of Acts that search the scriptures to see if these things be so. False teachers say, trust us and do what we say. Uh, Peter says, let me remind you what the Word says and do what God says, right? So that's our job. Peter says he's reminding them of what the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles taught and wrote. So remember to rely on God's Word. And then just one more time, verses 3 and 4, he says, don't trust the word of scoffers. Don't trust the word of scoffers. Um, he says, knowing this first, and perhaps he wanted it to sound like, beware of this. Scoffers will come. Say that with me. Scoffers will come. Scoffers will come in the last days. And really, scoffers in all days are energized by the original scoffer, Satan. Remember Satan scoffing when he was talking to Adam and Eve? Um, did God really say? He's, uh, you know, and she, and uh, he's, oh, you won't die. You know, he's scoffing. He's rejecting that that would really happen like God said it would. Um, now, technically speaking, help me out here. Uh, what, is, what, what does um, the New Testament means, mean when it says the last days? I mean, you immediately think of the days we're in and the increasingly, you know, building up to the time Christ come back. But really, when you look closely at the phrase the last days, it, it means a time between two things. Uh, and what is that? Anybody have a guess for us? Yeah, the time between Jesus' first and second coming. This church age that we're in. So it was the last days when um, Jesus ascended to heaven. The Spirit came on them at the day of Pentecost. The church began, went from 120 to 3,120 baptized believers. They planted other churches. So that was the last days. This is the last days. And we also think of how we're heading toward the time Christ will rapture His church. The seven-year time of tribulation will happen after that. 
and then Christ's second coming to earth where he'll then set up a thousand year reign of Christ on earth fulfilling scores of Old Testament scriptures. And so I like how in verse 2 he talks about uh, the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New. Uh, they are joining together in proclaiming God's truth and these scoffers uh, are rejecting it. So in Matthew 24, Jesus gave a way to know we're getting to the last of the last days. Uh, and do you remember the analogy Jesus gave? Uh, what did he talk about how uh, when we think of signs, and, he, and we've heard about some of those earthquakes, etc. What uh, picture did Jesus put in our mind related to a woman about signs of the very last days before these things come to pass? Yeah, birth pains, birth pains. So uh, we had three children and you know uh, the wife would start having the contractions and they'd be 10 minutes apart you know and then they'd get a little closer eight minutes apart and then the closer they got we knew we were closer to what the birth right and Jesus put that analogy in our head so it's kind of brilliant really of the Lord because from when he went back to heaven until now every time in the last 2,000 years there's been an earthquake one of the things believers are to think about is, huh, Jesus is coming. You know, every time there's been a, oh man, there's two countries and they're fighting. Man, Jesus is coming, you know. And uh, as the increase of these things happen, we go, huh, ready or not, he's coming, you know. And so every time, every one of those things makes us think. So in Matthew 24, Jesus talked about increase in the frequencies of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecutions, false prophets, professing believers falling away. All of those things are signs it won't be long and to be ready. And recently David Jeremiah talked about some things, and I've been doing it too, uh, about how alarming it is this increase of people calling themselves ex-vangelicals. I used to believe in biblical faith and now I'm an ex-vangelical. Uh, some of them now have no faith, others gravitate toward a church that doesn't preach the word and says uh, sexual sin is okay rather than something to be repented of. And uh, David Jeremiah said what many of us are thinking that, oh, that means we're getting closer to the time of Christ's return. There sure are a lot of professing Christians in that camp. And I mentioned it earlier, but sadly the latest research uh, is indicating that they called it the 2020 Census of Religion and it was a massive study of Americans between 2013 and 2019. And as far as I could tell, there was only one really thing of good news in there. It seems like those who say, I'm a nun, or I have no religious affiliation whatsoever, has actually gone down a little bit in the last few years. It crested at 25.5% of the population, and that's a huge number, and it's down to 23%. So that number appears to be going away a little bit. But as I told you, uh, predominantly white evangelical churches are down from a high of 23% in 2006 to 14.5% now. So nearly a 10-point drop since 2006. Meanwhile, predominantly white mainline churches who reject the Bible's teaching on many things, including human sexuality, have actually gone up from 13% to 16.4%. And, um, you know, what a country does matter and I think it was 2016, wasn't it, uh, early in the year, the Supreme Court passed the Obergefell decision that made gay marriage possible in the federal structures of the country 
and was interpreted to mean it was the law of the land throughout the country, just like abortion and Roe v. Wade. And you can almost see it since then, kind of a chill in the country spiritually. Um, and uh, kind of, a, you know, C.S. Lewis had this amazing quote once upon a time. He said, in the end, there's only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, okay, have it your way then. And to me, the scariest thing about the coming time of tribulation, that seven years, you know, Psalm 2 talks about a heart attitude that the people of the world who don't love God have about God. And in Psalm 2, it shows, you know, people rejecting God and His Messiah, right? And shaking their fist at heaven. And for all these years, the godless have said, we want to do life without God. Oh, you religious people are so, you cramp our style, you know, and you hold things back. And uh, I think you can see that throughout history, when Israel would turn to the gods of other nations, God would say, you're trusting, I mean, you're worshiping those idols? Trust in them to keep you safe. I'm not going to keep you safe right now. Trust in the gods of Babylon. Oh, by the way, if you want to worship the gods of Babylon, guess what? You can have Babylon as your overlords. You know, in other words, you're, you're, not, tra you're, you're not having freedom in God plus this false worship. Uh, you're rejecting Yahweh worship, and instead you're going to subjugation to the idols uh, that are ultimately satanic in nature, right? So... During the time of tribulation, it's very evident that what God will do is let earth try to do seven years of earth without God. And so right now, I honestly believe when a meteorite heads toward uh, earth, God just brushes it away, right? But we read of such things striking earth during the time of the tribulation. Secular people are already all kinds of worried, you know, about the big one coming one day and hitting us, right? And uh, right now, God doesn't let that happen. But during the tribulation, the book of Revelation talks about such things hitting earth. Um, you know, people wonder, well, what will the world think when the rapture happens? This is pure speculation on my part, but I believe what the world will think is aliens will have done something on earth, you know. And we're primed as a nation to believe that all the missing people will be explained through some kind of alien thing. And so the way confusion and distortion of minds works out. And so, um, uh, but in our country, you can see, I think, since the Obergefell decision, just kind of like we're dropping off a cliff as far as the uh, moral indicators. And it's been very, very sad. Um, many of our evangelical young people have actually wound up in those mainline churches now, apparently wanting a little bit of Jesus, but not the kind of faith that calls for repentance. And that ought to make us really sad. Even sadder, as I said, white evangelicals are now the oldest religious group with a medium age of 56 years old. That's awesome in the sense that there's so many faithful laborers and warriors over the age of 56, but the fact that number's getting older means we're not touching lost generations below that age, you know. And uh, the fact that we're the oldest means we've got a lot of work in loving evangelism to do. Um, we're not keeping our own young people. We aren't reaching enough new young people with biblical faith. Jesus and His apostles told us these days would come. So don't miss this. There it is again in 2 Peter 3, uh, verse 4. These scoffers are following what? Their own what? They're walking according to their own lusts, it says. It's not 
biblical love, it's lust. And lust is very selfish, it's very self-oriented. It is, I think I deserve this. I don't care if it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and you certainly see that in the sexual expressions. You see that in other ways uh, as well. Uh, look again at 2 Peter 2. We looked at it, but let's read 12 through 16 again. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So again, Peter at least there in the second chapter, is not speaking of people that don't claim to be believers, but those that do. Um, uh, I think a month or so ago I mentioned how in the last presidential election, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the Democratic candidate, um, actually chastised um, believers and said, gay marriage is not only okay, it is the loving Christian thing to do, and those that would reject it don't really know Jesus. <laughs> and so he's saying that his religion that says it's okay is the one. And, and of course, closer to home, back in 2016, our own Senator Tim Kaine said something very similar. Uh, perhaps you remember this, at the Human Rights Commission National Campaign National Dinner, he made this confession. He said he was a devout Catholic who fought for LGBT, for those that don't know that's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Q has been added in for questioning or queer. And then the plus sign for anything else that isn't biblical conservative faith, you know, the God's purpose for marriage. Cain said that he was a devout Catholic who fought for LGBT rights and had a difficult time reconciling those things being okay with his Catholic faith. He said, my full support now is for marriage equality. It's at odds with my church, but my church will eventually embrace it. My church will eventually embrace it. And there are denominations that have. The Catholic Church isn't one of those full embracing churches yet, but they're going to, he believes they'll get there one day. And here's what he said, it's going to change because my church also teaches me about a creator in Genesis 1 who surveys the entire world, including mankind, and said it is very good. Pope Francis, this is still him talking, famously said, who am I to judge? And to that I want to add, who am I to challenge God for the beautiful diversity of the human family? I think we're supposed to celebrate it, not challenge it. Wow. Peter would say, yes, that's who I was talking about in 2 Peter verse 3, where I say, know this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. And they'll say... They'll deny clear teachings of the Scripture, right? They'll deny and, and, and they'll say, basically, God is for what I'm for, and everyone else should be also. So he's a modern-day scoffer who obviously doesn't fear God. Now, you've heard of the great commentator John Stone Street. He actually went to school up in the Shenandoah Valley there at Shenandoah Christian School, so he might have played Westover at some point in basketball or something like that. Now he's head of the um, 
Colson Center, you know, named after Chuck Colson. And here's what he said after Senator Kane's uh, comments. He said, Senator Kane is a terrible interpreter of the Bible and very selective in his focus in Genesis 1, not interested at all in what happens in chapter 2. <laughs> That's where Jesus pointed to when he was asked about marriage. Male and female have complementary roles and are the participants in marriage because it was not good for the man to be alone. God did not create another man for Adam, but woman. As a Catholic, what Jesus thinks should probably matter. Cain betrays his lack of fear of God and his complete giving in to the spirit of the age. It's also disingenuous for him to act like the Pope is on his side when the Pope was recently very clear in reaffirming the biblical truths of male and female and marriage. Tim Cain, a modern-day scoffer who obviously doesn't fear God, and there are many others that would fit that category as well. When a nation doesn't fear God, it will lack common sense. And uh, we're seeing that all around us, aren't we? In saying things that are not okay or okay. Isaiah the prophet said, Woe to the nation who calls what's bad good and what's good bad. Galatians 6-7 says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Well, that brings us to verses 5 through 7 in this text. And, and it, we want to, here's the heading. The future judgment of the unrepentant is as certain as the past judgment of the unrepentant. So as Peter wrote, he was concerned about these scoffers denying that Jesus Christ was going to return. And here he says they were willfully ignoring something. God has already judged the entire world once in a global flood. And to bring it back to that day, many in Noah's day were mocking and scoffing at Noah for building the ark. Hey, why are you building that boat, Noah? Uh, why are you preaching to us? Oh, you say God's going to judge the earth. Well, you told us that a decade ago and you keep building. <laughs> and hey, you told us that two decades ago and you keep building because it took a while for the ark to be built, right? And they just scoffed and mocked and said, nah, Noah, you don't know what's happening. And uh, even some of his own family members were probably doing that. In fact, you know, um, according to uh, the book of Genesis, uh, who's the oldest man that ever lived? Methuselah. What is it, 969 years? Is that how long he lived? You know, if you add up the dates in Genesis, you know what year he died? The year of the flood. The year of the flood. To me, it's highly unlikely that he just died of natural age at 969. I think he was swept away in floodwaters, and he was among the mockers and the scoffers. And so, you know, uh, you know, sometimes all our, you know, there are times when our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents, there's times when they're real godly people, but not always. <laughs> sometimes they're wicked old men and old women, you know, that never repented. And I think that was probably the case with Methuselah. Uh, which is scary to think about. So Noah had not only the crowd rejecting what he was saying from God, but also his own family members and some very close to them. But finally the day of judgment came, and while Noah and his family were saved because of being in the ark, the sinning, mocking world perished. So look at verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men, the damning of ungodly men. So another worldwide judgment is coming, and those who are not in Christ will be in trouble. So those who weren't in the ark perished. Those who won't be in Christ will face the judgment 
that is coming. We say, Danny, please give us some good news. I got you covered. Or rather, Peter has us covered, right? So he, he's very sober in this, you know. He says the fact that God has judged sin in the past, uh, you know, should be a guide for us to know He takes sin that seriously and He will judge it in the future. And of course, all the apostles teach us that God takes sin so seriously that He can't be merciful to any of us apart from what Christ did for us on the cross, right? The only reason we can experience mercy, God's grace and mercy rather than judgment, is because Christ bore our judgment on the cross and we're, we let Him. You know, yeah, I'll take that offer. I'll be saved rather than damned. Thank you, Jesus. But uh, verses 8 and 9, the reason God delays Jesus' is coming, and let's read those again. Uh, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Whew. So according to the way God stands above time, the whole earth is only about six days old, right? <laughs> it's gone by like this for Him. He stands above it and He knows what uh, humans are going to choose and it's, uh, His omniscience is awesome. So that means it's only been two days of God's time since Jesus died on the cross. So meanwhile, the population of the world has gone from just a few hundred million in the days of Jesus to about seven billion, seven and a half billion now. Technology and travel now allow us to get the gospel to all peoples of earth far more easily than 2,000 years ago. So for that, we can be grateful. And we love the promise in Revelation chapter 5 and the Revelation chapter 7 that absolutely every people group on earth, every language will be represented in heaven, which is just awesome to think about the success of the gospel, uh, that there will be somebody represented from every place on earth, which means every place on earth has had some ability also to hear the gospel or if not a full gospel witness enough natural revelation for them to say there is a creator let me follow that I've recommended this book before but over in the library they've got a book called eternity in their hearts by Don Richardson and he tells story after story of a person from an idolatrous part of the world somewhere in Africa or somewhere in Asia saying this is nuts there's got to be more and they start saying, God, if you're out there, show me more. And the next week, Wycliffe Bible translators get there to say, hey, we're going to tell you more. We're going to give you God's book. Oh, great. Some places around the world actually speak of a lost book. And then the missionaries get there to give them the Bible, you know, and biblical truth. And there's been some amazing stories like that. Uh, you know, one, uh, man, one of my favorite stories is out of Burma. And um, I'm going to tell this full story in church sometime. I don't know if I've told it here yet. I might have. But um, uh, a man had a vision of their horse in the village leading them to the truth, right? And so the village met about that and decided to uh, let the horse off of its lead and just follow it to wherever, wherever it went. And literally the horse traveled several days and they had a party from their village following the horse as it went. And the horse came to a stop in what looked like an abandoned village at a well. And they're like, what now? And a man came up out of the well who'd been working on the well, trying to dig it and replenish it and stuff. And he was an American missionary there. <laughs> and they said what they wanted. And he said... Okay, I'm real busy now working with about 8,000 converts over in this part of the world that I've gotten. 
He said, but I'll send you one of our guys we've trained. And that one got to go and lead that entire people group to the Lord. A story out of Asia, which is pretty cool, the Burma region. Um, and God does things like that, right? So that's good news. Um, so Scripture promises that there will be somebody from every tribe and tongue in heaven. So God delays the coming judgment to give all people the chance to hear and respond. And, and we ought to all know this verse 9 here because... These grace-soaked words in verse 9, God delays the coming judgment because He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's His heart throughout all the Scriptures. When Jonah was complaining because he didn't like, as a Jewish God-bless-Israel prophet, Jonah did not like that he had to go to the enemy and give them a chance for repentance. He knew if he did preach to them that God would save some of them. And he didn't want them to be saved. I mean, think about it. Any missionary on earth would love to write a prayer letter and say, 120,000 people repented when I preached. And they were some of the worst sinners on earth. Jonah didn't want to, <laughs> that to go out. Um, poor old Jeremiah labored for years without hardly any converts and stuff, right? Uh, and yet was weeping over the sin of his people and, uh, and, and uh, wanted God to work in his generation. And that's just kind of a, a sovereign lot lottery there. You know, we're supposed to be faithful and God determines the fruitfulness, uh, the level of our fruitfulness and stuff. So, um, but uh, throughout the Bible, this is the heart of God. In fact, turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. And at some point, you should read um, the entire chapter of Ezekiel 18 because it's so good. But we're going to go to the last three verses. Verse 30. Therefore I would judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Um, Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? And then verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. I wonder if you remember the last message that Bailey Smith preached here the year he died. Of course, he was riddled with cancer, you know, and he was very weak. But he gave us a wonderful message that day. And the message was, All the things that you'll have to get past if you go to hell. Uh, you have to get by the clear pronouncements in God's Word that He'd rather save you than damn you. He'd rather save you than judge you, right? You have to get by the, all the messages you've ever heard that called you, and each one became another witness against your defiance and not turning to Christ. You have to get by the different people that have been praying for you to come to Christ and shedding tears so when they put you on their prayer list hoping that one day you'd be born again and those things. And he just went on and on with several things like that. Anybody remember it? Whew, it was very moving. And he probably preached it before because he had a lot of those that he pre preached before and stuff. But uh, very, very powerful. He is not willing that any should perish. Rather, God wants all to repent and live. And never forget that when you're dealing with folks. Um, it's so easy to hear preaching and say, oh, you know, that's that fire and brimstone preaching. You're going to go to hell if you don't repent. But that's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of the preacher. It's not the heart of the church. 
whether it's somebody very close to you, a child, a grandchild, whether it's a sibling, whether it's a friend, a neighbor, and those things, uh, we want them to know that God loves them and we do too, and that repentance is the key that unlocks all the blessings of God as we turn from ourselves to Him and experience those things. And if you have that mindset as you read the Scriptures, then they come alive in a very different way. Even the time of the tribulation, there's a time, we're told during the time of the tribulation, where some scorpion, some demonic scorpion type things will sting people. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And it says that for five months they'll sting people and the pain will be excruciating, but the people stung won't be able to die. But they'll want to die. Let me die, God! I hate you! Let me die! You know? And uh, as I was studying that for preaching it back at uh, the other church, and I'm going to do Revelation sometime coming up here too, as I study that passage... I go, why in the world would God let them experience that kind of torment during that time and want to die, but not die? Well, it's because, and for that matter, why seven years of tribulation rather than just time's up, you know? And the answer is that there is one thing worse than five months of hell on earth, and that's eternal hell. We talk to some people, you do too, that feel like God is out to get them and life for them is hell on earth. And yet God's been trying to get their attention in different ways. Sometimes using the more sugary approach, words of encouragement, thinking about the prodigal son or whatever, you know, and, and God's love for them, John 3.16. Other times the more direct, you know, um, that, it, that there's hell to pay if you don't turn to the Lord. So um, there's different motivations in the scriptures even to come to Christ, you know. And those, we, we, we try to use all those just like a fisherman uses different bait. You know, we want to bring people to Christ before it's too late. Um, but there is one thing worse than a sense of hell on earth now. And in an age when many people are despondent and suicidal, and a lot of it is because of they have already rejected God and they are trying to make life matter by bringing you know, so many different sinful solutions, addicted to this, addicted to that, you know. Um, there, there is one thing worse than the hell they're living. God has let them stay alive because hell forever is worse than hell, hellish experiences on earth now or during the time of the tribulation. And so we just want to project out there, there is time to repent. Back to the story of David Sharp as we move toward closing here. So May 15, 2006, 40 hikers were nearing the summit of Mount Everest about to fulfill their dreams of standing on top of the world. But on that final leg to get there, they had to pass right by the infamous Green Boots Cave and David Sharp, who was dying at the same spot old Green Boots had died a decade earlier. Now earlier I asked, what would you do, right? Um, every single climber, every single climber, trudged right on past David Sharp and went on to the top of Mount Everest. Nobody stopped to help. They all went right on by. They were far too invested in getting to the top and fulfilling a lifelong dream for themselves to bother with a guy that was dying in that cave. Now there may have been little they could have done to help him as he clung to life. I mean participating in a rescue mission at that point would not have guaranteed the survival of Mr. Sharp. But the fact remains, when confronted with the choice of either continuing toward the peak or offering help to a dying man, those climbers went on. They left him there to die. 
But God is not willing that any should perish, but that all may turn and come to life. So if that's the heart of God, are we going to be the kind of people that walk on by or say, I'm going to be part of the rescue heart of God? If God's not willing that any should perish, well, I take a little bit of my time and be part of something like the Good News Jail Ministry. Sunday morning, third Sunday, David's going on our behalf. Every Sunday, every third Sunday, he gets to go to the Good News Jail Ministry and share the gospel there before he comes to church. Um, others can get that training and go different places. Rosemary is among those who's done that training to do it there. Uh, many of you have been involved in the Good News uh, Ministry. Um, some are involved in God's pit crew type things. Uh, we all have to, we, we rejoice that we've got 25% or so of what comes in that goes out to missions. And so we're part of a giving church. And then we have, uh, you know, in, opportunities to embrace the giving aspects of it. But praying and giving and finding some way, as Lamar talked about, something you can put your name on. Some way to say, yeah, I'm, I'm doing something to, to reach out there. Um, we're going to start the Iwana ministry back up. And uh, I expect 100% cheering on as we fire up that bus and go back over to Purdom Woods uh, and reach out to the kids there. Doing something about lostness in Danville uh, and then other places beyond, you know, as uh, we take, um, send people, take people, doing everything we can. Because if we love and serve a God who's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to life, we can't be the spiritual equivalent of those hikers that just went right on by while this man was dying in the cave. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Amen? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.